0: Hi, everyone. All right. you all. Hope you had good uh, Christmas uh, times with your families and friends. Um, it's really a blessing that we get to um, have this service together as we anticipate the new year uh, in really few hours, right? So may we get to uh, encourage one another uh, through this time. Uh, as we think about the past year, and also as we uh, prepare well for the upcoming year. Uh, but yeah, uh, let's keep our hearts warm for the Lord as we hear God's Word. Uh, and we, uh, this week and next week, we'll be going through a few passages in Philippians. Uh, today, we'll read Philippians one twenty-seven through 30, and then uh, next week, it will be Philippians 3. Um, just around the topics of looking back, and then uh, next week we'll be looking forward. So, uh, with that in mind, let's uh, read this passage together for today. Uh, Philippians 1, 27 through 30. All right, I'll read it for us, but why don't we take a little pause and smile a little bit. Just smile. I know... It's not as genuine if you're forced to do it, but just, you know, take a little second and um, think about all the joyful things that God has given us this year. Okay, all right. All fake. <laughs> oh, thank you for being good sports. All right, Philippians 1, 27 through 30. I'm sorry. <laughs> ah, raise up my sleeve a little bit. It's getting a little hot. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Should have done this earlier. Okay. Okay. Thank you for your patience. I got a long arm, so <laughs> it takes a little longer to roll up my sleeve. Okay, one more. Okay, thank you. All right, ready to go. Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Here's God's word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or see you, and see you, or am absent Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here, that I still have. Amen. All right, that's God's word. Uh, let's pray together really quick one more time, and let's um, go to God together. Uh, this is a holy, precious time that God has given us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, gathering us here. Thank you that you have a word for us. Because without that, uh, we'd be so lost. God, where will we be? without the anchor of our souls. So, Lord, please uh, wake our hearts up to your word and um, help us to be attentive to what you have to say. God, thank you for this calling that I have to deliver your word and uh, get to have the privilege of encouraging my brothers and sisters here. So, would you do Just that, right now, may you encourage and challenge and exhort our hearts through your word. I do pray for uh, many of us in our church who are traveling right now and who are out of town, um, uh, worshiping you in uh, other places in other churches at the moment, or maybe earlier in the morning. I pray that you would um, uh, unite our hearts, unite our church, uh, even though we may be apart from one another physically at this day uh, at this moment, God. Thank you. Help us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question before we go any further. Uh, Do you know a person named Jim Elliot? Jim Elliot. Uh, He's an American missionary who was uh, killed at the age of 28. Uh, maybe some of us are at that age, or younger, or a little older in our church. But he was killed at the age of 28 at the hands of the indigenous people of the South America, uh, the very people that he was there to serve. And he's famous for saying uh, this quote in, his, uh, in one of his uh, journal entries, uh, saying, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Again, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Basically saying that Christ uh, is worthy of his life. He wrote this before he died for Christ. You know, when you hear a story like this of Jim Elliot or other people who um, had a short life but intense uh, for Christ, maybe a part of us might be, uh, you know, tempted to say, like, oh, those are just special Christians. You know, those are just, you know, people who have special callings. Probably not me. I'm not that type. But perhaps, though, a part of us, another part of us, uh, might yearn for a life like that. You know, a life that, you know, goes beyond the day-to-day, you know, week-to-week mundane uh, Christianity, a mundane American life, um, but, but truly lives for Christ, whatever the cost, like whatever. You are like so single-minded. We might yearn for that. And in today's passage, Paul will depict for us such a life as a norm for Christ followers. And what I want us to do as we go through this passage is that uh, I would like us to use this passage as a rubric uh, for how we lived our life this past year, because this is a norm, as we'll see, for Christian life. Uh, And as we do that, I would like to celebrate... Know, God's faithfulness in our lives this past year, uh, as well as you know, repent uh, for all the ways that we might have failed to live this life that God has called us to live. That's our goal. Let's use this as a rubric for uh, this past year. And I trust that this will help us to you know, plan and prepare for the next year well. So, follow with me as I uh, go through these three points for us to follow along. Those are uh, live worthily uh, of the gospel, second, fight for the gospel, and third, suffer for the gospel. And hopefully, you get to see my heart as well for you um, as we uh, look back at this past year well and again look forward to our coming year. First, live worthily or worthy of the gospel. Verse 27, it says this, only let let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the command uh, Paul gives to the Philippian church. Again, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, in Greek, The the long phrase that we just read is one verb, one word. And if you have the ESV Bible, you should have a footnote uh, that says uh, about that verb, uh, how it can be translated, only behave as citizens. Okay, just one word that can be translated, you know, with many words like this in English. Now, this verb derives from the Greek word for city. Uh, Paulus, you know, think of Minneapolis, that's where we got that uh, city of war from. And, and that verb tells people who live in the city to act as citizens, you know, working for the good of their city. So, be a good citizen, that's what it means. And I believe Paul is intentionally using this word out of all the other words that he could have used uh, because... The, the word city is important for Philippians. Uh, the city of Philippi was a Roman colony, and the people who lived in the city were, you know, who are Philippians were Roman citizens with all the benefits and privileges. You know, for them, you know, being a Roman citizen, was such a badge of honor at the time. You know, they would flaunt it wherever they went, and they would try to live Like uh, Romans, you know, uh, they would act like Romans, you know, both legally and culturally, wherever they went. And now, as Paul is using this word for Philippians, this is a twist. He Christianized this word, meaning that, um, you know, when, when Paul says to live like citizens, he seems to have a different city in mind, not Rome. You know, in the text, he says that their life should be worthy of, the gospel of Christ, not Roman constitution. And later, uh, chapter 3, verse 20 of this book, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, using the same uh, category of word, using the word polis uh, that we just looked at in this verse. So Paul is therefore saying that the Philippine Christians are primarily citizens of the kingdom of God. Before, they are citizens of Rome, and therefore, they are supposed to live by and for the gospel of Christ over Roman custom and culture. And here, this does not mean that they are to disregard their responsibilities as Roman citizens. You know, they are to strive to be good Roman citizens too, obviously, but what Paul is saying is that their core, their primary, number one uh, allegiance, uh, identity, is to be the citizens of God's kingdom, you see. And its central message, the gospel, therefore, has to be their pride, not, you know, Roman identity, but the gospel has to be their song, their anthem, their norm they live by. And, and If there's any conflict between, you know, Roman and the Roman custom and the gospel, they're supposed to choose the gospel because that is their primary identity. And that's what he's saying here. Uh, My wife, Deb, uh, is a proud East Coaster. You know, she was born and raised in Maryland in the greater in Washington, D.C. area, and ever since we became friends and, you know, especially since we started dating, she has told me how great the East Coast is, almost making it sound like heaven on earth. Especially, she would go on and on about how fresh the seafoods are there because it's so close to the coast, and even to this day, she's hesitant about eating sushi in the Midwest. Uh, but just so you, you want the persecutor for this, you know, I, I can tell her, I can tell you guys that she also appreciates Minnesota, you know, especially the, the, the nature scenes, the how we appreciate, you know, uh, going outside and, you know, be fit uh, like all seasons. But even there, she, you know, time time compares the, the great Appalachian Mountains in the east to the just hills of Minnesota, or even the, the, the Atlantic Ocean versus the lake. Superior, you know, but she still appreciates Minnesota. Just so you know, but you can tell, you know, what someone's you know core identity is, you know, when you hear what they talk about, you know, you you can see what their passion is in their lives, uh, when you pay attention to what they uh, talk about the most and how they live. You know, likewise, if you consider. You know, being a citizen of heaven to be your primary identity and passion, you will talk about it the most and you will try to live like the gospel is your, you know, engine of your life. And here, to be sure, I'm not saying Paul is advocating for us to simply talk about, you know, how Christian we are. That's not what he's saying, I believe. Not with our lips, but... What this means to be, you know, um, citizens of heaven being your co-identity is really internal. Meaning, day to day, we're to firstly internally um, marvel at the fact that God loves us. Marvel at the gospel, how though we're hell-deserving sinners, He sent His Son to die for our sins, and now we're united with Christ, We have the same destiny with Christ, meaning just as He rose from the dead, we have new life now. And that's that's how we live. We are also heaven-bound, no more hell-bound. And through all of that, we get to realize and be convicted by how loved we are. And that shapes our character, how we love other people as well. You know, when that's your song and anthem and core message that you preach to yourself every single day, then your words and your behaviors will follow. You live like citizens of heaven. It starts from the internal of your life. And that's really what it means um, to live faithfully as citizens of heaven on earth. So at this point, as you get the point of, um, you know, this verse, I wanna I want us to pause and you know ask this, uh, this question as we look back at this past year. Some questions that we can ask is, you know, was my mind uh, filled with the scriptures this year? You know, was my mind filled with the biblical worldview? You know, so that you no, know, I was feeding my core cool identity as citizen of heaven. Did I marvel often at the wonder of the gospel and how God loves me like that? Or was the worldly messages the anthem of my life? And did I make decisions and spend my money and time and energy according to what the scriptures say? Or did I do them according to what the world instructed me to do? Did I live like citizens of heaven this year? And as we take a moment to repent and also celebrate God's faithfulness around these questions, I think we can also think about how we can live better then uh, next year. Live worthy of the gospel. Second, fight for the gospel. Again, norm of Christianity. Fight for the gospel. Now, will explained for us what it specifically means uh, for Philippian Christians and us to uh, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. He will spell out for us. Uh, but before we get there, I think it will be helpful for us to understand the context of the Philippian church. Uh, for Philippians... Uh, their context was persecution. Their neighbors did not like them. There are three reasons here. One is that you know Romans call their emperors Lord and Savior. When Christians talk about Lord and Savior, it wasn't original. They got it from Romans because they were trying to contrast how Romans lived, you know, uh, calling their emperors Lord and Saviors whereas for Christians, it's Jesus Christ. So when Romans saw that, they didn't like it. Second, another reason for persecution was that Romans believed in you know, many deities, in you know, polytheism, and they call, guess what, uh, Christians atheists. <laughs> Literally, if you go through the historical documents, they call uh, Christians atheists because they only believed in one God. Interesting, isn't it? And Romans didn't like it. And lastly, uh, people just simply didn't like Christians because of their moral purity. They wouldn't go along with all the you know, worldly and even gross, sinful lifestyles of the Romans at the time. Christians stood out in their culture. And just like when somebody is good in the midst of darkness, People don't like it. So Christians were persecuted for those reasons. And now the question then is, what do we mean? What 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 it mean for these Philippine Christians to live as citizens of heaven in this context of persecution? And Paul is about to say, go to battle for the gospel, fight for the gospel. Because if you are truly citizens of this kingdom and country, wouldn't you die for this kingdom? And therefore, he says, go to war for the gospel. So let's try to understand what this means, going to war for the gospel. First, verse 27, uh, it says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, standing firm. The word stand firm has an image of soldiers standing fast in the face of attacks. So the Philippines Christians are to firmly hold on to their primary Christian identity and the core teachings of the gospel and not give in, not compromise to the temptations and threats of the world, and not water down their message or renounce it even. Stand firm. That's what it means to go to battle, but second is more offense. So, it says uh, in verse 27, uh, the last portion, it says, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Uh, The word striving there uh, could also mean, you know, fighting the opponent in an athletic competition. Before we talk about the, you know, military image, but now it's more athletic competition. Um, And standing firm, earlier was more defense, standing firm, like hold on to your core message. But striving, this word is more offense for the gospel, you know, moving forward and advancing uh, the gospel to those who are opposing it. But just so you don't misunderstand this, uh, by offense, you know, we're not talking about attacking people with the gospel, uh, but rather it means to steadfastly and boldly going forward with the gospel, you know, by living it out and by sharing it with the people who may not like it. Uh, who may not like to see us living for Christ in our day-to-day lives. That's the offense we're talking about, so to clarify. Uh, in fact, you know, Paul uh, exemplified this in, in this letter. Uh, he said that while he's in prison, while he's writing this letter, uh, he is using the opportunity of, you know, of being in prison to share the gospel with the people there, even the, you know, prison guards and, you know, uh, higher up people there. He's using the opportunity to advance the gospel. He's in offense, therefore, that's what it means. And uh, what's interesting before we go any further is if you notice uh, the repetition of words here. Uh, for example, uh, in one spirit, side by side, and in one mind. What that means is, as we you know are on defense and offense for the gospel. The one crucial element uh, is that the church, the team, the the group of soldiers, so to speak, must be united. You know, just as an army must be united in order to stand a chance in a war uh, and even hope to win the battle, Christians must be united in the cause of the gospel. Only then, you know, we can stand firm and move the gospel forward in the world. Unity is the key here. With that in mind, let's look at the third element of what it means to go to war uh, for the gospel uh, is that uh, Christians are not to be frightened. Uh, Verse 28, it says, and not be frightened in anything by your opponents. The words uh, for this verse have an image of horse Uh, being startled by unexpected things around them. Just kind of think about that, like being really frightened uh, by unexpected things. Uh, Meaning that in this fight for the gospel, the Philippians are are not to fear what the enemies might do to them, but they are to be courageous in the battle. You know, expect suffering, expect, you know, opposition, but don't be scared. And Paul caps this battle cry for Philippians by saying this in verse 28. Uh, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Here, Paul is not just telling them, do this, be, be defensive or you know, offensive, do it. But no, no, he is actually saying, no, the, the final, the ultimate motivation for your battle It's God. He's saying, you know, God is in control because he will take you to eternal salvation. He will win the war for you. And there will be terrible consequence to those who oppose uh, this battle. Destruction, eternal damnation. This is from God. God will take care of you. So trust in God and go to war. You're not alone. God is behind you and, you know, ahead of you. Keep fighting for the gospel by being united as a church. As as I was listening to Paul, you know, rallying the Philippine Christians in this way, I I thought of uh, this image of whitewater rafting. How many of you have gone rafting before? Only a few brave souls. I'm just kidding. White water rafting, it's a kind of wild thing. Uh, it's white water because the water looks white, right? As opposed to blue, uh, meaning it's like very turbulent, um, you know, torrent of water. You know, I've gone several times, and I'm just really intrigued by how this works. Um, so, at least the ones I've been to, uh, there are four people uh, in one boat, I guess, for this one, oh, no, it's four or two, but sometimes six, I think, two. Uh, they get into each raft, and they try to maneuver the boat or raft into uh, to the, the end of or destination, um, you know, through this white water, you know, fast streams and waves of water. And the people, what's interesting is this, the people on the raft uh, do not do the same thing. They all do different things. Because if they do the same thing, if they, you know, row or if they maneuver or steer um, the raft in the same way, what's going to happen literally is it's, it's going to spin. Like, it's going to keep spinning around. Because somebody has to row, uh, you know, pedal this way. Somebody has to pedal that way. Somebody has to steer the, the boat. It's pretty complicated, but it really requires, you know, unity. Uh, on, on, between the people on the raft. And that's a good picture of Christian life, too. And and also, another thing about this wider rafting is actually that you shouldn't be scared of being capsized, too. If you are scared of, you know, uh, being left in the water because, you know, your, your boat just got flipped over, this is not for you. You have to get wet. Then it's not water, white water rafting, it's blue water rafting. Okay? But again, I'm saying that this is a good picture of Christian life because just like we have to expect being capsized and get wet in white water rafting, in Christian life also, we have to expect that we will get some dirt on. Life is already hard, but Christian life can get a little harder. If you want a comfortable life, this may not um, be something that you should, you know, really expect for your life to be about. Because as Christians, you will face oppositions, whether from people around you or even in your families, but ultimately by Satan in many different forms. You will be capsized. You will be flipped over. You will get wet. But it's about going forward um, through the, the waves and through the wild streams. And another thing in this image that is good for you know our purpose is that uh, we as a church should be united too. Again, you know. On the raft, if people are doing all different things, but not united, then the the raft will not go forward. Um, Just like that, as a church, we may have different gifts, each one of you. I don't have what you have, um, and I may have what you don't have. We all have different gifts. But we are to um, acknowledge that we are on the same raft, going through the same struggles of white water, around us but our destination is the same saving souls with the gospel of Jesus Christ in wherever we go wherever we live and work and we do that together by encouraging one another by exhorting one another by challenging one another by comforting one another to keep going to keep fighting sins and by keep working for holiness by keep receiving God's grace. And with that same goal in mind, we go together through different types of white waters along our way. And that's how we uh, fight for the gospel. And that, again, is a norm for Christian life. So with that in mind, uh, I want to ask you then... um, as we look look back at this past year, some questions that we can ask is, uh, did I stand firm in the gospel this year in front of unbelievers? Or did I compromise in any way by how I spoke and behaved before them? That's defense, right? And now offense. Did I strive for the gospel? You know, did I actively try to live out my Christian identity among unbelievers? And did I serve actively their needs in love to show God's love towards them? And did I even verbally share the gospel with anyone when opportunities arose? Or did I shrink back in any way for fear of offending people? And lastly, again, think about the whitewater rafting image. Now, as a church, did I help and encourage my fellow brothers and sisters, my fellow rafters, so to speak, in our church to be better citizens and soldiers for the gospel because we're in this together. How was I as uh, members of this church? Again, as we celebrate God's faithfulness in many ways and as we also repent and as we receive God's grace at, at this moment, now think about how we can do better next year, how we can grow uh, to fight for the gospel in the world. A few questions perhaps. One, you know, are there specific people that come to your mind that I want to minister to, that I want to share the gospel with? Who are they? Second, are there specific ways that I can serve my church and strengthen my fellow Raptors? for the battles ahead in the world? How can I be a blessing to uh, others in the church? Fight for the gospel. Let's not be in a cocoon. We fight for the gospel. Third and last, suffer for the gospel. It's like almost as if, you know, I'm giving you more, stress here, <laughs> going from, you know, live, you know, fight, and suffer. <laughs> but I hope you see my heart and see Paul's heart as well. I believe, you know, Paul is now trying to answer the question that might be arising in uh, Philippians and our mind, which might be, why is Christian life so hard? Why are we supposed to face, you know, persecutions and sufferings and We cannot coast, you know, why why should we do that? Why suffering? And Paul is about to answer that by saying suffering is a gift. Verse 29, look with me. It says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but, but also... Suffer for his sake. This is a sobering verse here, so look with me here. The key word in this verse is the word granted, granted. In Greek, the word grace is actually, uh, you know, has the same root, etymology, as the word granted in this verse. So here's what that means just as the word grace means uh, an undeserved good gift. So this word granted also means to give something as a good undeserved gift, to give it as a privilege. So I say you, you might have given you know, Christmas gifts to somebody, same thing. So what are those gifts in this verse? Two things. First, Paul says, our faith is a gift from God, which is very easier, much easier to accept, isn't it? Because if faith is not a gift, man, we're doomed. I mean, I don't know about you, but left myself, I can be very stubborn and rebellious towards God. But God in his grace broke into my heart and made my heart of stone into heart of flesh. As in Ezekiel 36, so that we can believe in the gospel and continue to trust in Christ. That's a gift. If you don't acknowledge it as a gift, then that's pride and also very unfortunate because your Christian life will be miserable. But if you know that it's a gift, you rely on God and say with the disciples, Increase my faith, God. So it's a gift. So again, that's more, you know, easier to swallow. But the second part of the verse is saying that suffering also is God's gift, and that's another level, isn't it? How do you swallow that? So please process with me. How can suffering be a, uh, you know, gift? I think there are two implications here. One, if it's God's gift, Our suffering is not an accident, therefore. It's intentional, meaning that God orchestrated all our sufferings purposely. And like we saw earlier, Satan definitely brings suffering for evil purposes to to trouble us. But God allows uh, that to happen to bring about his good purposes. And earlier in the book, therefore, Paul went on uh, to say that You know, God appointed him in prison. Appointed him in prison to suffer, to advance God's gospel there. Another implication of suffering being God's gift is that God is not punishing you when suffering comes, if you're in Christ. Once you cross the line and you are uh, God's children, there's no more um, eternal damnation that comes through suffering. What that means is every suffering you go through is a gift and discipline for your good. It's not about punishing you to you know, pull you down. That's what it means that suffering is a gift. With that in mind then, please follow with me. the the key phrase in this verse to understand and appreciate uh, the idea of suffering being a gift is this. These three uh, words. For Christ's sake. It's very important. Uh, Later in the book, Paul says this in uh, chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. It says, But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. You cannot um, miss that, the, the, the repetition of the, the words for the sake of Christ or for Christ's sake. So here's what that means. Paul is saying that you know he can suffer, you know everything and anything in his life. He can lose anything, because when he loses everything, he gains Christ as his everything. You got that? The more he loses, the more of Christ he will enjoy as his exclusive joy and gift. You know it, it suffering has a very strange way of taking away our idols from us so that Christ is our only love and we desire more intimacy with Christ because of losing things in our lives. And best of all, as a result of suffering, you know, Christ is magnified through us. As we lose things, You know, Christ again becomes our only strength and joy It becomes all about Christ in our lives. And when the world sees that and when they see how Christ is our everything and He's magnified through our lives and they will say, wow, is Christ that worthy? They're embracing their suffering. They're okay with losing their, you know, possessions, losing their, you know, whatever they treasure in their lives, they're okay with that? Because Christ is that worthy in their lives? Wow! That's unheard of in this world. Christ is worshipped, you see, when we suffer well. So therefore, suffering is God's gift. Hope you get that. As we Draw a full circle here suffering is a gift why it grants us the only thing we the only thing that we need the most in our life which is christ we got to have more love and joy and obsession even for christ than anything else um my, my son is over there right now. But um, when Seth was little, uh, one thing that he often did, uh, I still remember, I kind of chuckle about it, is this. That he would crawl really fast when he was crawling, uh, like Natalie, uh, he would crawl really fast to different parts of our living room. And he would just like put things in his mouth and lick them and you know, all of that. And if you know uh, anything about babies, Uh, you would know that that's perfectly normal. In fact, it's it's good that they do that because they're exploring things and, you know, they're teething at at times as well. Uh, But what worried me and even made me laugh is um, how he would, you know, lick things that he's not supposed to lick, such as, you know, our window frames and, like, AC vents and things like that. Uh, it's because, you know, the, the paint on them could be kind of, you know, peeling and I wouldn't want him to, you know, eat any of the, you know, chipped paints and things like that. So I would follow him everywhere at the time and, you know, whenever he is about to lick those things, you know, I would go, no, 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 don't do that. But being so smart, <laughs> he kind of got the pattern down. so. So he would know that I would say no to those things. So he would crawl over to them, these, these things that I, I don't want him to lick. And he would wait for me to say, no, no, no. And when I say no, 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 he would just like smile at me. And he would lick anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, you know, so I will just like run over to him. And, you know, he would, I would pick him up and try to pull him away from those things. And that interaction, you know, stuck with me and that made me think. So, just think with me here. There are two perspectives here. From my perspective, I say no because I know it's a good thing that he, uh, you know, does not lick these things. But from Seth's perspective, uh, you know, he might be seeing me as a killjoy. He might be thinking, like, Dad, now, do you not know how awesome it feels to lick the poison's paint? Do you not know how cool it feels when I do that? Why would you afflict me by prohibiting me to do this? Because that's all he can see and think, right? And when I think about that, I really wish, I mean, I think, our kids are growing and I, I see their growth in how they understand me and why we say no to them. But I really wish whenever they feel sad, look sad, I really wish they would know why I'm doing this. So I, I wish they would know the heart and love behind these prohibitions and afflictions that that we inflict on them. And to me, those are good pictures of Uh, the different perspectives between God and us, I think. Meaning, when it comes to suffering in our lives, uh, you know, based on today's text especially, you know, God is telling us that, you know, various things or sufferings that he grants us is a good gift. And when he says that, from our perspective, we have a hard time understanding that. We think that God is a killjoy, God is cruel even. How can this be a gift? But it's only when we get to understand the heart of God personally. Just as I would want my kids to understand my heart. It's only when we get to understand God's good loving heart. We get to truly understand little by little how suffering can indeed be a gift from God. It's hard. It's very hard. I mean, even as I I look back at my own life, it's painful when I think about some of the things I went through. But I do see at the same time, man, without those things, I, I would not have grown to love Christ more in my life. But it's still hard. How can suffering be a blessing and gift? It really takes us to know God to see the beauty of suffering in our lives because it's for Christ's sake. So let us pause for the last time as we think about that and examine the past year. You know, what were Some of the ups and downs in your life this past year. I'm sure a lot of things happened. I can't believe it's already last day of the year. Time flew by, but as you look back, I'm sure there are a few things that come to your mind right now. What were the ups and downs? What made you really joyful and exhilarated? And what were the things that perhaps kept you up at night? What made you cry even? But especially when you zone in on to the, the downs of the year, uh, can we think about how God may have, you know, faithfully carried you through those difficulties and how he helped you grow to become more humble, which, uh, by, by which I mean how you became more reliant on God over yourself, over your plans and how you uh, became more um, zoned in onto Christ more than anything else in, in your life because of sufferings. And please hear me right. I, I'm, I'm really sorry if you are still in the middle of suffering so that when you hear these charges that I just gave you, it may hurt your heart. You're like, oh man, I'm still hurting. <laughs> I'm still processing. Please know in no way I'm trying to discount the pain that you have right now or dismiss those sufferings by simply saying, you know, oh, it's good for you. It's good for your uh, good, uh, for a good purpose. I'm not trying to say that. Brother, my hope and prayer is that as you look at the purpose and as you look at the good grant her, God, of those sufferings. I hope you see that there's hope in your midst, that there is clear value of why you're going through, why you're going through right now. And i like to see myself right now as a good brother of yours in Christ, trying to do my part as a fellow raptor Uh, to encourage you to stay in the battle for the gospel. You are in the battle. Your fight is good. It's a good fight. Keep going. Because God is growing you. God is making you more valuable as a child of God. So let's look back at this past year together uh, as, as we think about all the tears and toils Let's look at God who redeems it all, who redeems it all. In fact, as we started the sermon by thinking about Jim Elliot, how his life was truly worthwhile beyond the American dream, beyond the mundane day-to-day life. Think of all the sufferings that we went through, whether it's small or big, how God is using those things to grow us into the extraordinary life. He's making us again more valuable. He's making our lives more worthy, worthwhile. And may we come back to the core of who we are. Think about why we're Christians. And may we prepare to fight well together for the kingdom this next year. Let's pray. some time right now, um, maybe a little longer than what we usually do in these times. Just to, uh just want to give you a little more time to um, look back at this past year. I think whenever we <clears throat> have these times uh, before, you know, New Year's Day, It's a good opportunity for us to examine our hearts and examine the past year so that we do not just gloss over and keep going um, forward in in our lives. We need this time to sit and uh, examine. So may we do that right now. Um, Perhaps think of a few um, events or things that you, that stand out to you, things that um, gave you joy as well as sorrow and pain even. And as you do that, would you remember God's faithfulness, God's grace, that your life keeps going and He's helping you right now as He just spoke His word uh, through this text let's do that this past year and God's grace and we'll sing and respond with this song let's pray